Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. Throughout this series, I continue to call the inhabitants of Palestine Palestinians. And that's despite the fact that until the, oh, let's call it the late 19th, early 20th century, that there was no real Palestinian national project. What that means is that I'm saying that Palestinians were Palestinian before that even became an important detail in their lives. Now, how can I justify that? Well, going back to the 10th century, historians like Al-Maqdisi and beyond, um, they refer to, within Sharia court documents, to Ahl Palestine and Abna Palestine, which means the people of Palestine and the land of Palestine, to refer to the inhabitants of the southern Levant. Now, these were legal documents. They're not political manifestos. What that means is that they were meant to be broadly understood. So they knew that they were Palestinians even though there was no national project associated with the land of Palestine. When I try to explain this to a, to a Western audience, to an audience that, especially to a Western audience that may not be so in tune with history and may not, may not be able to imagine a world without national projects, the best example that I could come up with to just really drive this point home is Cascadia. Now, some of you listening might not have any idea what I'm talking about, but if you live in Vancouver or Portland or Seattle, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So residents of Vancouver, Canada, or Seattle and Portland in the United States, they understand very well that these three cities, this region of North America has a shared culture and a shared identity. I mean, our accents are indistinguishable from one another, and we have more in common with each other than we do with our compatriots from Alberta and Canadian side of the border or from California on the American side of the border. And yet we don't share a common national project. But if one day we did, we would immediately refer to our shared cultural identity, our shared cuisine, our similar dialect and our slang and our lingo. And we would talk about how we are in fact one nation. Now, this is something that was developed just over what, 200 years? Imagine a shared language, a shared culture, a shared history, folklore that developed over 3,000 years. And so, yes, it is well within my right to refer to Palestinians as Palestinians even before there was a Palestinian national project. Now, I promised from the onset here the story of modern Palestine. And while I think the context that was provided in episode one was necessary, um, I think we can now fast forward several hundred years to begin telling the story of modern Palestine. And that story begins in the 16th century. So 
I've been laboring for, I don't know, the better part of two weeks, just trying to figure out how to tell this part of Palestine's story. In fact, I've actually had this episode complete and ready for release for most of that time. And I had all of the right information. I just didn't feel like I had the right story. I listened to it a few times and listened to it again some more. And I just found that something was missing. And finally, it dawned on me that this chapter of Palestine's story, the dawn of the Ottoman Empire from the 16th century all the way till the early 18th century, can best be told as a story of families and the cities that they inhabit. Families, the cities that they inhabit, and the world that they created. Palestinian society was and remains a society that places family at the center of its social structure. This is true in both of Palestine's dominant social classes and in all of its indigenous religious communities. Between the 16th and 18th centuries, again, the period that we're discussing here, Palestinian society was divided primarily among two social classes. The first, which made up the overwhelming majority of Palestinians at this time, were the Fallahin, the peasants. The peasants lived primarily in villages, with communities of a thousand people or less, which usually encompassed a few families. I'll, I'll define in a bit what that means. Which usually encompassed a few families, and they were subsistence farmers. They lived on communally owned land, uh, in Arabic, Ard Musha', literally land that is owned by the community. And this is how they lived. They were an agrarian people. The Bedouins, for their part, were a semi-nomadic people. They were not sedentary like the peasants. They were semi-nomadic in the sense that they didn't, they didn't go everywhere. They weren't all over the place. They stuck to a basic geographic area where they could graze their, their livestock. And then in other parts of the year, they would come into a semi-sedentary a semi type of life. They continued to straddle these two ways of life. The Muslims represented the overwhelming majority of the population, about 80 to 85% during this era. Christians representing roughly 10% of the population. The Jews represented somewhere between 2 and 5% of the population. When we get into the 19th and 20th centuries, we'll be discussing these three communities and the way that they interacted, interacted with one another in a lot more detail. And so, for hundreds of years, it was within the context of the family that Palestinians most comfortably understood their, their identity. And when I say family, I feel like I need to qualify this a little bit. We think of a family as just a mother, father, the children, like the nuclear family. That's not really what I mean. The family in this case is the house. So if, you're a, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, think like House Stark and House Lannister. This is what I mean when I say the house. So a family is a bit more like we, what we would understand to be a, a tribe. And just like in the Song of Ice and Fire series, where House Stark was from Winterfell and House Lannister is from Casterly Rock, major Palestinian families also had throne villages. That's what that's called, a throne village. 
And what that means is that irrespective of where the winds may take some member of the tribe, maybe as a result of commerce or marriage or anything else, there is always a home base from which the affairs of the house are run. And if a house is run successfully, within a few generations, it can transform into a clan or even bigger into a confederation, a confederation of houses. So why look at this stage of Palestine's history through the lens of families? Well, when I was studying political science at, uh, at Simon Fraser University, this is back about 10 years ago now, and I took this 200 level class, so a second year class, and I can, and I've tried, I could probably look through my transcripts and find it out, but I can't for the life of me remember either the name of the professor or the class that I took. But, but I do remember what I learned, and I remember one of the most important concepts that came out of that class. I learned that year that the most important feature of a state, or rather, the most important feature of a functioning state is one where the governing authority has a monopoly on violence. Let me repeat that. The most important function of a state is one where the governing authority has a monopoly on violence, where it is the only institution that is legitimately allowed or capable of using violence. So, by contrast then, a failed state is one where the governing authority no longer has a monopoly on violence. The way that a state comes to earn that monopoly is by having people trade in their right to use violence, either willingly or unwillingly, having people trade in their right to use violence in exchange for something. Now that something is not unanimously agreed upon. Even in the most developed of nation states, the secondary and tertiary functions of the state, such as providing health care, education, basic services, they vary from state to state. We don't all agree around the world on exactly what, and, and even within our, in, within our countries, we don't have unanimous agreement on exactly what the, roles of the, what the role of the state is. But the general agreement is that submitting to the state is preferable to what the philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the state of war, the state of nature. Now, when we think of this state of wars, like when we think of the condition of failed states, we imagine a type of hell. A failed state is what happens when things go wrong. It's, it's built into the definition. It's, it's a failure of the system. But why is that? Why do we imagine a failed state to be like that? Well, since the time of, well, okay. Since the time of Thomas Hobbes, the thinking goes that the decentralization of violence, that means a condition where a state does not have a monopoly on violence, this generally means that people are going to be subjected to more of it. There's just going to be more violence to go around. And whatever the responsibilities you think that the state is supposed to offer, education, healthcare, defense, all of those, none of those, some of those, a failed state, the thinking goes, will offer none of those. In more modern times, like since Hobbes and since our political evolution has continued to progress, we've grown to believe that the modern liberal secular democratic state is the only entity 
that can provide peaceful coexistence between disparate groups. And there's a tremendous amount of hubris in that assumption. Like, look, I'm Canadian. I live in Canada. And in Canada, it is precisely that hubris that for so many years framed our perception of indigenous communities, indigenous people in our country and abroad. Okay, please understand, I'm not an anarchist and I'm not a, I'm not a revolutionary. That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm selling you here. But the fact is that up until very recently in our human history, violence was rarely in the hands of one massive institution. It was, more often than not, concentrated in the hands of families, houses, tribes, and clans. And it is those houses and families and tribes and clans that, so long as they could stick together and perform two key functions, made their world go round. So what is it that a successful house or a tribe had? What did it need? What were those two key functions? The first, pretty intuitive, is to be able to project violence outward to meet the aims and objectives of the tribe. Either violence or the threat of violence was necessary in order for a tribe to continue to exist. Otherwise, it would be erased. The other important function was that it needed to be able to project violence inward in order to police the behavior of its clansmen, its tribesmen, the members of the house. So realize this, that in such a system, it would have been very normal, very normal, not just in Palestine, but in any situation where houses, tribes, clans, where they ruled, for someone to require permission from the house, means like from their chief, in order to get married, in order to pursue a particular venture. There is a certain point, though, where blood ties become so distant and families become so big that the tribe begins to splinter and fracture. This juncture, it's worthwhile to go back to episode one and remember that a common story or a common purpose or a common vision becomes necessary then to keep such a big unit together. In fact, you know, when I think about it, I don't think that a failed state is simply just one where the central authority no longer has a monopoly on violence. It's more than that. I think a failed state can occur where the people within that state are no longer bought into the common vision or the common story, where the people no longer see themselves reflected in the story of the nation. You know, it's worthwhile here. If, if you want to understand the modern nation state of the Middle East, I think I could sum it up in one story. So when I was a teenager, not like not unlike many other teenagers, I had this obsession with organized crime. Scarface, Goodfellas, Casino, like I've, I've seen them all. And so I remember on a road trip once, I was sitting in the front seat and talking to my dad and I asked him, why aren't there any Arab mafias? Like there's, a, there's an Italian mafia, there's a Russian mafia, there's a Chinese mafia. There's, there are all these mafias. Why is there no international Arab mafia? And my dad <laughs> looked at me with, my dad was incredulous. Like he, he looked at me um, almost 
uh, almost disappointed. And he said, of course we have mafias, but our mafias became so big, they became the state. Now, I didn't fully understand it at the time, but I do now. Now, for all this talk of power and violence, and maybe you're expecting to now hear the beginning of a 400-year history of nonstop bloodshed in Ottoman Palestine. But it turns out that's really not the case. And yeah, I mean, while there were occasional large-scale blood feuds between warring tribes, those did happen, they were the exception. They were not the norm. I think that one of the most exciting parts about this bit of Palestine's history is that we get to, we get to look back in time and see a system which is totally foreign to most of us in all of its glory and all of its failures. Like we get to see the social arrangements that allowed Palestinians to maintain their unique way of life for hundreds of years. Now one more preface before I go on. It's my last my last detour. Just because we are looking at Palestinians as family units, I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that the people of Palestine and the people of Eastern cultures in general did not have individual agency. This is one of the, the biggest shortcomings of Orientalist literature is looking at Western peoples as peoples with individual agency and looking at Eastern people as people with only collective agency. What that means is that people in the West have individual hopes and motivations and dreams and people in the East have collective group motivations and dreams and hopes. The the truth is that all over the world, People have individual aspirations and motivations, but those aspirations and motivations exist within a social context. We, I'm, I'm recording this now January 1st, 2020. Over the last few weeks, people have been obsessively Christmas shopping, preparing for New Year's. Yeah, it was 2020. It was a pandemic year. But nonetheless, people were engaged in all of these social functions. And if you asked anyone, why are you doing these things? They had individual motivations for what they're doing and what they're buying and where they're going, but they all existed in a particular social context. So just keep that in mind. So in the story of modern Palestine, the first family that we will introduce is not a Palestinian family at all, nor are they Arabs. This family, whose story I will share in far less time than they deserve, is the House of Osman, the dynasty that came to rule the Ottoman Empire. This is not a podcast about the rise of the Ottoman Empire, so I will keep this very, very, I will keep this insultingly brief. The House of Osman or Uthman, led a collection of Islamic warrior tribes. The story that seems to have rallied these warrior Turkic tribes behind the House of Osman, the central story that seems to have driven this, this family, was the story of Osman's dream. A dream that this patriarch was going to control these vast lands over three continents. 
in the early 16th century, about 1516, 1517, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire led by the House of Osman, took control of the Muslim world from the Mamluk Sultanate. Cairo, Damascus, the three holy cities of Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem all fell to the Ottomans. So now the Ottoman era of the Islamic world begins. But right off the bat, right from the get-go, the House of Osman has to contest with another story deeply rooted in the identity of the Arabs. And that brings us to the second family at this juncture in the story. And that is the family, or the tribe, of Quraysh. In pre-Islamic Arabia, Mecca was still a place of pilgrimage to polytheistic, idol-worshipping Arabs. And Mecca was ruled by a family called Khuza'a. Khuza'a were not the original rulers of Mecca, but this is, this is where I want to begin the story. Khuza'a is a tribe that rules Mecca. Scattered around Mecca are a collection of smaller Arab tribes. A descendant of one of those tribes was named Qusay ibn Kilab. Qusay ibn Kilab marries the daughter of the chief of Khuza'a, brings his tribesmen into Mecca, and essentially usurps control of Mecca from Khuza'a. Qusay ibn Kilab became known as Quraysh. Quraysh al-ladhi qarash al-Arab. He is the one, the word means, the one who brought the Arabs together. He brought his tribesmen together into that city. Mecca becomes the throne city of Quraysh. And as the generations pass, different individuals, different descendants from Qusay ibn Kilab develop their own legacies and their own legends and their own reputation. And within the tribe of Quraysh, you end up with a sub-branch of the tribe, the Banu Hashim, who become the cream of the crop. They are the most noble. They are the best of the best. So what you find in pre-Islamic Arabia is that Quraysh, and specifically the Banu Hashim, are considered the highest and most noble among the Arabs. And then suddenly, 1400 years ago, one of the sons of Quraysh, someone who even the average listener will be very familiar with, one of the sons of Quraysh receives a revelation that he is a prophet of God. I'm speaking, of course, about Muhammad With the dawn of Islam and the beginning of that prophethood, there is now another story developing among the Arabs. The prophet of Islam came spent nearly his entire prophethood picking away at the tribal identities of the Arabs, picking away at the tribal loyalties of the Arabs and building a new identity. And that new identity revolves around a belief in one God. So no longer is it an identity exclusively about the tribe that you are from and your kinsmen, but it is an identity revolving around the belief in one God. Well, these two stories, 
the story of Islam and the story of Quraysh, they intertwine at one critical juncture. Upon the death of Muhammad a group of his companions known as the Ansar, and without making this an Islamic history lecture, the Ansar were companions who were not from the tribe of Quraysh. They were from the oasis town of Yathrib, later named Al-Madina. And a group of these people, they are from the tribes of the Aus and the Khazraj. They have convened to appoint a successor to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Two of Muhammad's closest companions, Abu Bakr and Umar, hear about this and they go to crash the party. Abu Bakr attends this meeting and he speaks and he tells the attendees, you are the best among us and you defended the Prophet when nobody else did and, 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 and he heaps praise upon them. And then he tells them, but the Arabs will never accept a leader who is not from Quraysh. You see, Abu Bakr knew that though the Arabs had accepted Islam, they still believed in the nobility of Quraysh. And appointing a leader who was not from Quraysh is inviting insubordination. You are inviting an insurrection. It will happen. It will be inevitable. And so how deeply rooted are these two stories in the Muslim world? Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, the first four caliphs in the history of Islam, all from the tribe of Quraysh. The Umayyads who succeeded them, 10 generation dynasty from Quraysh. The Abbasids who succeeded them are from Quraysh. And the Mamluks who succeeded them only ruled with an Abbasid figurehead in Cairo. When the Ottomans come to rule the Muslim world, they are the first to hold the title of Caliph. They are the first, their leader is the first to hold the title of Amir al-Mu'mineen, leader of the faithful, who is not from Quraysh. And so the Ottomans realize, they know this, they realize that they have a legitimacy crisis. And so they are very quickly on the path to legitimacy. Early on, the Ottomans know that they need to assert their authority over this newly acquired land. There are numerous ways they could have gone about this. One way is a show of overwhelming force. That's one option. You know, um, when the House of Saud, the Saudi royal family, when the House of Saud outmaneuvered and overpowered their rival tribes in Arabia, they, uh, they hosted a big feast with the notables of all their former rivals. And this was supposed to be like a conciliatory gesture to put the past bloodshed behind them. With all these tribesmen gathered... They had servants bring out massive trays of food at each, you know, each sitting for each tribe. And at the center of each tray were the severed heads of all the rival chiefs. <laughs> so the Ottomans could have gone for something like this, but they didn't. And surprisingly, and somewhat counterintuitively, the Ottomans also didn't try the other option of selling to the Arabs Osman's dream. 
the dream of conquering these three continents. Had they wanted to create an Ottoman identity, that would have been the approach that they should have taken. And yet that didn't seem to be an objective. As uh, Michelle Campos writes in her book, Ottoman Brothers, quote, The Ottoman state throughout much of its existence looked upon ethnic and religious diversity among its subject population and state officials in an altogether pragmatic fashion. It did not care about their identity, per se. As one scholar has written, for most of its history, now here she is quoting another scholar, the Ottoman state was neither seeking to meld together the separate communities nor consciously planting the seeds of further division among the subject peoples of the empire. End quote. So that leaves us with a third option. The Ottomans ended up pursuing a more mundane but no less effective path to legitimacy. We can call this the facts on the ground approach. As early as possible, they sent out surveyors and bureaucrats. They reviewed all of the family trusts, uh, in Arabic, awqaf, uh, established during the Mamluk era. And what could not be recovered was reinterpreted in new Sharia courts with new Ottoman-appointed judges. And with each survey, and with each new Sharia court hearing, with each new ruling, the seal of the House of Osman was placed on just one more document. Bit by bit, people simply came to realize this is the new government. And so long as the Ottomans were able to hold on to their end of the bargain, they figured that no one will question their legitimacy. That bargain essentially boiled down to the administration of widely respected institutions like the Sharia courts and protection from external enemies. Who are these external enemies? One is the never-ending, constantly present crusader threat. The Muslims simply believed that sooner or later the crusaders were going to return. And so the Ottomans assured their newly acquired Muslim territories that we can and will protect you. And they could, and they did. The other threat came from rebellious Bedouin tribes. And this was just something that simply never went away in the Ottoman Empire. There were always pockets of insubordination from Bedouin tribes who just lived outside, outside the law. And the Ottomans were there to say that should these Bedouin tribes give you any trouble, we'll be there to put them down. And so this is essentially the agreement. The Ottomans come to rule, and the Ottomans collect taxes from these newly acquired lands. In exchange, they maintain and in, in fact expand on the Sharia court services and protect the local people from external enemies. That is the exchange. But in this world where houses and clans are the nucleus of power, the Ottomans need to be careful to not allow for any one family to rival its claim to ultimate authority. And so, with this in mind, the Ottomans created Sanjaks. These are administrative zones. They're like provinces, but smaller. And one hallmark of Ottoman rule in Palestine was their use of indigenous clans to lead their administrative zones. 
So they created five administrative zones in Palestine. I'll only be discussing three of them. So you have the Sanjak of Jerusalem, the Sanjak of Nablus, and the Sanjak of Safad. Those are the three that I will be discussing. And in each one of those Sanjaks, they picked a preferred indigenous tribe to lead that territory, but they didn't let any of them get so big in any place in the Ottoman Empire, they didn't let any of them get so big that A, they would be difficult to administer, and B, that any of these local tribes could become strong enough to one day rival the Sultan. So I said just a moment ago that I will only focus on three administrative areas in this era of Palestine. The Jerusalem, Nablus, and Safad Sanjaks between the 16th to 18th centuries. And there's a good reason why I'm doing this. So if you were one of these Ottoman bureaucrats and surveyors that I mentioned in the last episode, and you arrived in Palestine in the early 16th century, you would have landed along Palestine's coast. And if you landed nearly anywhere, Akka, Haifa, Yafa, Asqalan, essentially with the exception of Gaza, you would have found the coastline to be essentially depopulated. Now, keep in mind, these are all ancient cities that predate Islam. So these are cities that at one time or another had populations. And yet, in a time where cross-Mediterranean trade was lucrative and fought over, the Palestinian coastline was sparsely populated. You could hardly find anyone there at all. So why would this be? Well, some Orientalists have claimed over time that this is rooted essentially in Muslim negligence. Muslims were just such poor rulers, and this is why the coastline was empty. This is, of course, nonsense. And it turns out that there is a much better explanation for this. And that explanation goes back to the Crusades. When Salah al-Din al-Ayyubi, the famed Salah al-Din Saladin, the uh, conqueror of Jerusalem, the liberator of Palestine from the Crusaders, when he routed the Crusaders from most of Palestine, he and his administrators knew that when the Crusaders returned, and they would return, they would hit the coast first and hit the coast hardest. And so the Palestinians shifted from life on the coast to life in the mountains. All three of the administrative zones that I will be focusing on in this era, Al-Quds, Nablus, Safad, they are all mountainous regions. On this subject, the historian Nur Masalha writes, quote, The siege and fall of Acre, a chief port and the capital of the Latin kingdom, took place in 1291 and resulted in the loss of a crusader stronghold and last crusader-controlled city in Palestine to the Mamluks. To modern historians, the fall of Acre was the end of the Crusades, but to contemporary Muslims, the Latin crusader threat to Palestine from the Mediterranean Sea persisted. In the post-crusader era, the Mamluks continued the strategic and defensive reorientation of the country toward the mountains a policy which began with the Ayyubids, end quote. So just imagine then that for nearly 200 years, the inhabitants of Palestine believed that the return of the Crusaders was inevitable, and it changed their lives. Now, I suppose a fair question to ask at this point is, when did the people of the region stop fearing the return of the Crusaders? <laughs> 
And the answer to that is never. They never stopped fearing the return of the Crusaders. They always continued to believe that sooner or later the Crusaders would come back. And in a way, history proved them right. Now, it would be absurd. It would be appalling to start any conversation about Palestinian towns and the families that inhabit them and not begin with Al-Quds and not begin with Jerusalem. I will not spend too much time speaking about the holiness and the sanctity of the city and its esteem in Islam and Christianity and Judaism. I will not spend any more time speaking about Salah al-Din and the Crusaders and the liberation of the city. All of that is beyond the scope of what I want to accomplish here. What I want to focus on are the inhabitants of Al-Quds in the era that I'm looking at here. I want to look at the unique qualities of Jerusalemite life. Now, considering that the overwhelming majority of Palestinians were fallahin, so were peasants, who lived in villages of a thousand people or less, life in Al-Quds stands in sharp contrast to how most pa Palestinians lived at the time. Considering what we do know about the sanctity of Jerusalem, you can be forgiven for thinking that this was an austere, stern, uh, deeply, exclusively spiritual, deeply pious place. And definitely there was some of that. But the truth is that Jerusalem was so much more complex. In the early Ottoman era, Jerusalem was a very lively place. And like many places, Jerusalem had its well-to-do and it had its impoverished. Well, we know a lot more about how the well-to-do lived because they tended to be literate and they tended to write things down. And if you could afford to enjoy the numerous luxuries that Jerusalem had to offer, you'd find that it paints an image that is difficult to reconcile with that stern, austere, and exclusively spiritual Jerusalem that many of us probably imagine. Here's Elon Pape describing the nobility of Jerusalem. He says, quote, most of them favored the Hammam Sultan. There, amid the scent of rose water and the aroma of coffee wafting from the loaded trays of sweetmeats, they discussed the vicissitudes of their times, continuing their talk long into the night in the city's cafes. The poets sang the praises of the new Naqib. I'll explain later what a Naqib is. And speculated about the future between puffs of their ergiles. These were the customary ways of the notables of Jerusalem, which Muslim travelers described as a lively city, quite unlike the picture that would be drawn by many Christian travelers. End quote. Jerusalem in the 16th to 18th centuries can accurately be described as Palestine's center of administration, learning, and, and we could say culture as well. It is also the focal point of Palestine's identity, not so much as a country, not so much as a, as, as a nation state the way that we imagine them today, but as a holy land. The implication here is that Palestine and Palestinians, they had, and I mentioned this before, they had a spiritual identity or they associated a spiritual identity with the land long before there was a national identity to the land. The presence of the Fada'il al-Quds, the Blessings of Jerusalem literature, this is a, 
uh, Islamic genre of literature that was written by Islamic scholars of the time, this dating back to before the arrival of the Ottomans, frames nearly all of what we know uh, as Palestine today as Al-Ard al-Muqaddas, as the Holy Land. The concept of Al-Ard al-Muqaddas is a Quranic concept, and it is obviously mirrored in Christianity and Judaism. And the scholars who studied this Fada'il al-Quds literature, they were keen on identifying precisely the boundaries of the Holy Land. Where is this Holy Land? Where does it start and where does it end? And socially, the people of Jerusalem and the people of Palestine in general did come to a general sense of where the Holy Land started and ended. And there are a few interesting there are a few interesting incidents that reveal to us what they understood to be the rights of the Holy Land. Um, as Rashid Khaldi writes in his book, Palestinian Identity, quote, The importance of this idea for shaping the nascent nationalist consciousness of Palestinians in the late 19th century has been well traced by the late Alexander, and I think the name's pronounced, Schlock, in his masterful study, Palestine and Transformation, 1856 to 1882. As he points out, for Muslims, this sense of Palestine as a country went back to the Fada'il al-Quds, or Merits of Jerusalem, literature, which described Jerusalem and holy sites and places of note throughout Palestine, including Hebron, Jericho, Bethlehem, Nablus, Ramla, Safad, Ascalon, Acre, Gaza, and, and Nazareth, for pilgrims and visitors to Palestine, and for the devout and inquisitive elsewhere. These place names suggest that a clear idea of the rough boundaries of Palestine as a sort of sacred, if not yet a national space, already existed in the minds of authors and readers of this Islamic devotional literature. A similar idea existed for Christians as well as for Jews. End quote. There's a very interesting incident that takes place um, in the early 1700s that gives a sense of the sanctity that Palestinians associated with the Holy Land. And, well, I'm just going to let this incident speak for itself. So this is also in Rashid Khalidi's book. He says, quote, The sense of Palestine as a special and sacred space recurs in the historical record. In 1701, the French consul in Sidon, that's in modern-day Lebanon, paid a visit to Jerusalem, an innovation never before permitted by the Ottoman authorities. This produced a strong reaction from the local Muslim population, whose representatives met in the Haram al-Sharif. There, more than 80 Muslim leaders representing the city's main families, together with several local military officials and large numbers of the populace, including poor and rich, deliberated and signed a petition demanding that the Ottoman ruler, Sultan Mustafa II, revoke permission for such a visit. End quote. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, and I'll just say a few things. So the first is that do not take this to mean that Jerusalem was off limits to non-Muslims. In fact, Jerusalem had, and always had, large numbers of Christians and Jews throughout the entire Ottoman period. Anyways, I thought that I would get that out of the way. What you need to understand is that due to the legacy of the Crusades, Europeans were viewed very differently than the indigenous Christians. And as you see in the story of the French consul, the locals viewed the European kingdoms, and particularly the French, as the successors to the Crusades. 
Um, what's also interesting in that story is that Sleda, Sidon, close to the Litani River, was not considered part of the Holy Land, and there it was okay for the French consul to reside. Now, remember what I said, the Ottomans did not have a massive political and military contingent in their provinces. For the most part, the people of Palestine, with the blessing of the Ottoman Empire, truly did rule themselves. Also remember when I said that there is another story, the story of Islam and the story of Quraysh that permeates through the pulse of the Arab and Muslim world. Well, in Jerusalem, you will see both of these stories lived out magnificently. It is impossible to overstate the importance of Jerusalem during the Ottoman era. To be a notable in Jerusalem was to be recognized in all of Palestine and abroad as a representative of Palestine. Perhaps more than any other Palestinian city, Jerusalemites took on their town as their family name, Al-Maqdisi. And so a city of this importance produced a very specific type of notable. Power in Jerusalem was divided in this era among three offices. The first is the office of Mufti of Jerusalem. That is someone who issues fatwas, who issues religious edicts. And I think it's pretty obvious why this office would be of significant political importance, so I won't dwell on it too much. The Mufti, of course, was appointed by the Ottoman authorities. The second, the second office that I need to bring to your attention, so you see the type of people who were ruling Jerusalem, the second office of massive importance was Sheikh al-Haram, the one who leads the prayers at Masjid al-Aqsa. And the third office in this era, by far the most important, and ironically being the only office that no longer exists. I'll tell you about this now. One amazing thing about these mega-narratives that we've been weaving here that capture the imagination of an entire people is that the closer you are to the center of the story, the higher up you are in the social standing of your people. Let me repeat that. In the story of a nation, the closer you are to the central characters and the central theme and the central events, the higher up you are in the social standing. Well, as I mentioned in the last episode, the story of Muhammad wasallam, the story of the Prophet of Islam, it's, it's central to the Muslim identity. And so it won't surprise you then that being from his descendants or the descendants of his companions was a major advantage in the Muslim world. From North Africa to India, every Muslim community that I've ever come across had a special term to elevate the people of Ahlul Bayt, the people of the household of, the people of the prophetic household. Sometimes they were called Sayyids. In Palestine, they performed another term, Ashraf, literally the nobility. Well, over time, many people became Ashraf. There were many people who claimed legitimately to have prophetic lineage. And Jerusalem had a collection of families, all of whom collect, uh, claimed prophetic lineage. And in a city like Jerusalem, you couldn't make up these credentials. People would know because they knew the lineage of the other families. But an institution evolved to help lead these families. And that was the institution of 
the office of Naqib al-Ashraf. Naqib al-Ashraf, literally the leader of the nobility. The Naqib was the essentially the de facto mayor of Jerusalem. And by the 1730s, the role of Mufti, the role of Sheikh al-Haram, and the office of Naqib al-Ashraf were all in the hands of one family, the Husseinis. From at least the late 17th, early 18th centuries, members of the Husseini family are filling important administrative and judicial positions in the city of Jerusalem. This was a literate, scholarly family and claimed descendancy through the Prophet's grandson, Al-Hasan. Another similar family who rivaled the Husseinis were the Khalidis. And they were smaller than the Husseinis and primarily filled judicial rather than political and administrative posts. And so when I say judicial, I also mean religious posts as well. They claimed descendancy from a prophetic companion, Khalid bin Walid. And so that's where they get their name, the Khalidis. So you can see already that in a city like Jerusalem, a strong bloodline, while perhaps not essential, and we will see some examples later in the story of uh, families that rose to prominence who didn't have this bloodline, perhaps not essential. It's certainly helpful in establishing status. People would not sub simply submit to the rule of just anybody. And the Ottomans knew this. So when they look to appoint locals to positions of power, they take this into account. I hope now it's starting to come together how the power of the Ottoman authority and the story of Islam and the story of Quraysh came together in this city. And so in the early Ottoman period, these families truly reflected the pulse of Palestine. Both of these families will go on to produce numerous people who will impact Palestine's history in unimaginably important ways. And you will find that for the most part, the changes that take place in Palestine's history are often personified in the changes within these families. So the Jerusalem of the Husseinis and of the Khalidis is a center of both learning and pilgrimage. Muslims traveled from all over the Muslim world to come study with scholars in Jerusalem, while Christians and Jews came to Jerusalem for religious pilgrimages as well. And it may surprise many listeners, but Jerusalem's religiously diverse native inhabitants actually got along pretty well. Most Ottoman Jews arrived in the 15th century after their expulsion from Islamic Spain. And the open arms policy of the Ottoman Empire was something that these Jews, who were called Sephardic Jews, uh, something that they knew very well. The Christians, for their part, had an uninterrupted presence since the time of the Byzantine Empire. And uh, it should be noted that the Christians actually perceived the Muslims to be an extension of their tradition. So the Christians believed that they that Orthodox Christianity, as they practiced it, in fact, influenced the growth of Islam. Regarding the Jews in particular, and I feel like this deserves a bit of extra attention, especially with, in light of what plays out in history later. Michelle Campos writes in her book, Ottoman Brothers, quote, 
Into the 20th century, Sephardic Jews, by and large, regarded the Ottoman Empire with a great deal of gratitude and affection as their historical savior. The Ottoman Sultan Bayezid II's open arms policy toward the Spanish and Portuguese Jewish refugees in the 15th century was an integral part of the Ottoman Sephardic collective memory. So much so that attempts by the Spanish government to renew its ties with Sephardic Jews were met with public scorn and disdain. End quote. I think that Ottoman Jerusalem presents some interesting questions for today about how to best deal with communities where the native inhabitants belong to different and sometimes competing faith communities. The most broadly held opinion, at least in the West, is that Western liberal democracy is the best, potentially the only, formula for managing disparate groups. I think I probably already mentioned this at some point before, but if we take a snapshot of the relationship between Muslims, Christians, and Jews today, there could be an argument made to say that the relationship between these faith communities is getting worse, not better. Jerusalem, then, was the ultimate microcosm for these three Abrahamic faiths. Now, I don't want to exaggerate and paint a picture that says that everything was perfect, because it wasn't, but is perfection really the goal when dealing with disparate groups? I mean, t take Vancouver, for example. So I've lived in Vancouver my entire life. Vancouver is frequently cited as one of the most livable cities in the world. It is the most Asian city outside of Asia. And I think that people who identify as ethnic minorities would say that Vancouver is a pretty good place to live. But Vancouver has... A problem that the local inhabitants know and people outside of it may not know. So Vancouver has a huge, huge drug problem. And subsequently, Vancouver has a massive organized crime and gang problem. And it also turns out that most of our organized crime syndicates are broken down along ethnic lines. We have Chinese and Vietnamese and Indo-Canadian and white biker gangs and, and there are others, of course. And so today, living in Vancouver in 2021, I don't feel like the conflicts between those organized crime syndicates in any way reflect the social cohesion between the different, the disparate groups that exist in this city. But in 200 years from now, if Vancouver were to descend into bloody ethnic chaos, maybe some PhD somewhere will be written about how the Indo-Canadian gangs of the uh, early and mid 21st century were actually the precursors to the death squads of the 22nd and 23rd centuries and you kind of get the idea. Sometimes we project the reality of the present on the past and read into things that are not actually there. Were there problems between the faith communities in Jerusalem? Yeah, they popped up from time to time, but they were not the norm. Interestingly, by the way, the problems that existed between the faith communities in Jerusalem, between the early Ottoman era all the way up to the early 20th century, primarily between the Sephardic Jews and the Christians. 
Now, there are some very interesting reasons as to why the Christians and the Jews would have had problems. Uh, one reason was that uh, both groups often vied for the attention of and affection of the Muslim community. The other is that, uh, and I don't want to read too much into this, but this is in the historical record, that uh, the idea of deicide, that the Jews were responsible for killing the God of the Christians, was something that was felt strongly in the Christian community in Palestine and would occasionally result in flare-ups of violence and aggression between the two communities. As just a closing note here, there's another thing that we can learn from Ottoman Jerusalem. It's it's the way in which the different peoples around the world view this, the concept of indigeneity. I know that this is something that I discussed in episode one, but Ottoman Jerusalem really brings this to life. As far as the Muslim inhabitants of, the, of Ottoman Palestine were concerned, their neighbors of the different faith communities were not foreigners, and so they belonged in the city. The Christians and Jews were thoroughly Arabized, and I say this despite the fact that the Jews of Ottoman Palestine, who were mostly, like I said, exiles from the Iberian Peninsula, they spoke Ladino. They spoke a Spanish-Arabic-Hebrew hybrid language that, to the best of my knowledge, is not in use anymore, uh, but they spoke this other language, and yet over time they were perceived as having indigenized, Arabized, and settled comfortably into the city that became their home. Now, with all of that behind us, we can now leave Jerusalem and head toward Jabal Nablus. 